test, 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 check, one, two, check, check. Coming down in three, two, one. Oral history is defined as the collection and study of historical information using sound recordings of interviews with people having personal knowledge of past events. Do an online search of oral history and you'll find a long list of recorded voices from the past. There are voices who tell stories of the immigrant experience in Canada and the United States, many voices of war veterans, Holocaust survivors, and the families of the victims of the 9-11 attacks. New York Public Library has a community oral history project on the go where they speak to people from the city neighborhood. Also on that online search, you'll find directions on how to start your own oral history project. This podcast focuses on one collection of voices from the past at the Kitchener Public Library. You'll hear how the program got started, the people who conducted the interviews, and speculate as well on the future of oral history. I volunteer at the KPL where I digitize audio cassettes from the oral history collection in the Gray Schmidt Room of History. The technology, which includes a cassette player with a USB cable, hooks up to my computer and transfers the file digitally. I have the easy job. The research and interviews were conducted a long time ago. Now what I do is sit back and listen to the stories in real time, take notes, and digitize and send the files off to the library. And there are some great stories about life at the turn of the century. Some stories date back even further, like this American Civil War era story from Gordon Cooling. He established what is now the School of Fine Art at the University of Guelph. In this piece of audio from a 1973 lecture on historical homes in Guelph, Cooling tells the story of former Guelph Mayor Adam Robertson while viewing a slide of the mayor's former home. Uh, well, I think 14th mayor uh, on 25 Mitchell Street. Adam Robertson was a very interesting character. He had um, uh, an iron foundry in the city. He was also Guelph fire chief. Uh, he was playing with fire when he uh, did some of the, uh, handled some of the contracts for his foundry. He traded with the American South during the American Civil War, made cannon, cannonballs here in Guelph that were smuggled uh, across the border in the Fort Stanley area, preparing the cannonballs camouflaged as potatoes and gunny sacks. As the story goes, the potato-looking cannonballs were intercepted by the North, and those who transported them were arrested. Karen Ball-Pyatt is the history librarian for the Kitchener Public Library in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. She explained that particular piece of audio, the earliest in its collection, had been donated. You can hear by the audio that whomever recorded it probably hit play and record and had the microphone sitting on the chair next to them. As time went on, the technology and mic placement improved. I sat down with Karen to discuss the program. So what was the criteria when they first got started? The criteria was fairly broad. Um, They um, wanted people from all walks of life, so they talked to presidents, they talked to nurses, teachers, they talked to factory workers, people who grew up on farms, people who lived around the corner, people who had interesting lives or experiences. So who approached whom? Um, Did the interviewers approach, make a list essentially of the people that they wanted to talk to, or did people in the community or even from the historical society approach them? From the files that I have um, for the program, they would draw up lists of people and then discuss um, terms of who to, t- who to approach and when to approach them, 
Um, if somebody um, was presented to them or recommended to them as a good interview, they would be put down and do them. Some background research was done in order to kind of fill out those missing questions that maybe is this a good person to approach and would they be willing to do something like that. Was this a new thing? Was it, have, have other libraries done this? Other libraries have um, done oral history tapes. I think ours is perhaps one of the larger collections, um, and it was something that was, um, I think, really embraced by the community. How big is that collection? Over 500 recorded interviews, over 1,000 cassette tapes. Wow. And that's real time, in the, and I'm speaking real time in the digital world of about 90 minutes. About uh, about 90 minutes for each tape, yeah. um, and um, the interviews were typically about 60 minutes long on each side. So, yeah, it could be quite long. Early 80s and 1980, how long did it last? Until about 2003, and they were done with the Oktoberfest presidents. What's your goal for these oral history tapes? I think really our goal is for, to share them with the community and that those tapes will help them understand our community and how it's changed and how it grows. And I think um, when people make connections, often when someone dies and they learn that the person had been interviewed by the library back in the 1980s, they, um, I've, I've duped tapes for people um, so that they could share um, listening to that tape at a, a funeral or a wake. Mm-hmm. And often the re- feedback that you get from people that hearing that person's voice again brought back so many memories and, and um, so many thoughts about well, their life growing up with them. So it's really kind of a touching thing because voices do carry and voices to transport people to another time and to another place. Sarah Brightup, interviewed by Ryan Taylor at Mrs. Brightup's home, 100 Queen Street North, April 28, 1981. Sarah Brightup was the wife of Louis Orville Brightup. He was the youngest mayor of the city of Kitchener, would later become a member of parliament, and then later the lieutenant governor of Ontario. With their life in politics, they traveled a lot and met some interesting people. Sarah Brightup tells the story of meeting a couple of people whose names you'll recognize. Looking back now, after a time of oh, 25 years or so, what are the things that you remember most? I think probably the people we met. Royalty and Helen Keller, a person I had known of all my life and always hoped I might have the opportunity of meeting her someday. Well, we had the opportunity of having a reception for her at the suite. And um, she came in, just a few people into my husband's office or into a smaller reception room rather than the big one because of course she couldn't go around visiting with people. Mm -hmm. And she had her tea in there with us and her secretary, Polly Thompson. And it was interesting, in the receiving line, uh, Mr. Bright was first, and then I came, and then Polly Thompson, and then Helen Keller. And Polly Thompson would listen for the name, and she would put, uh, oh, yes. give it to Spell Helen it Keller out. on, her, la- on mm-hmm. her wrist. One time there was a holdup. She apologized. She said, I gave it as Mr. Somebody or other. Then she said, I heard you call him General. So she said I had to correct it. Yeah. But... Um, she and I were left alone for a few minutes, sitting on a Chesterfield. Well, Polly Thompson went in to make arrangements about the speech she was going to make later on. And I never have felt so helpless in my life. She was right beside me. I knew she knew I was there, and yet I had absolutely no way of communicating with her. So the, the two of you just... We just sat. Ah. When you did talk to her through Polly Thompson, oh, yes, through Polly. what did you talk about? 
well, her life and, and uh, her, that she did, I got up tripping around and of course she had been to university and it, her, her life was very interesting. Mm -hmm. and, uh, then we met um, Queen Mother a number of times, were presented to her and the Queen, Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip. But, uh, they're very human. Yes. <laughs> when you meet them. What sort of things do you talk about with them? You don't do much talk. No? And they are supposed to suggest the subjects. Right. You're not supposed. I said to the Queen Mother at the time of the coronation that I hadn't, where I had been sitting, I hadn't been able to see Prince Charles. Of course, at that time, he was a little boy. Mm -hmm. And like all grandmothers, she brightened right up and she said, oh, you must see Prince Charles. He is a darling. I thought, well, after all, grandmothers are grandmothers the world around. I think so, yes. <laughs> and did uh, that's very interesting that, of course, they, they have to suggest the topics. And when you're sort of in the position of representing them, does that apply the same way, or, could, or was it much easier to talk to people? Well, yes, it's easier because we can... I, I, I never found it very difficult to talk to people. They were always glad to meet the Queen's representative and his wife. I came so close to meeting the Char um, Mr. Churchill at oh. the time of the coronation. I said to my husband, I'd love to, he was standing in the room, just across the room, I said, I'd love to meet Mr. Churchill. And he said, well, come. He said, I, I've met him two or three times. I'll introduce you. So we were within two or three feet, I could almost have reached out and shaken hands with him when Madame Saint Laurent came along and she said, oh, Mrs. Bright, I'm so glad to see somebody I know and took my arm and pulled me away. Oh, <laughs> oh dear. I, I was glad to talk to her, but it was a blow. Yes, oh, it would be. That has to be the most annoying thing when you're waiting in line to meet Winston Churchill and the wife of the Prime Minister of Canada, Louis Saint Laurent, pulls you away. Susan Hoffman was the local history librarian in 1981 when that employee, Ryan Taylor, presented the idea to the library. Susan explains how it all started. Ryan started the program in 1981 uh, after he came to KPL. As a, he was a reference librarian, and they, it was called Information Services in those days. And he and I were both in that department. And he had had experience with oral history programs at other libraries he worked at. Mm -hmm. So he talked our supervisor and the powers that be into starting an oral history program at KPL. And see, the, the Grace Schmidt Room didn't open until 1984. So this was all happening before we actually got to the point of having a separate local history collection. Oh, wow. Okay. So uh, all credit is to Ryan, definitely, for getting that started. He started it and then... When the Gray Schmidt Room opened in '84, we, you know, we took the cassettes and put them into the local history collection. But he continued to monitor and do that program really until he left uh, the employment of KPL. In uh, I think it was about 1992 he left us. Okay, boy, that uh, certainly but, uh, the oral history cassettes though would have been a great vehicle for opening the Gray Schmidt Room in in 1984. Oh, definitely, yes, a very unique collection. There just isn't another collection uh, so, like that anywhere. <laughs> yeah, oh, definitely. Definitely. Can you then, if you remember, what what inspired him? You said he had been um, working with other oral history um, uh, in, in other I think libraries. libraries where he worked before. Mm -hmm. um, 
And also, he was very fascinated with genealogy. Uh, long before he started working at Kitchener Public Library, he was already doing genealogy for himself and for other people. And uh, I think he just um, he saw that oral history was a very unique part of our local history and one that's lost, of course, once the person is unable to share their memories uh, in some kind of interview format like that. And uh, it just... Um, was something that he felt very passionate about. And fortunately, we were able to get permission to start getting, we got some funding through the library budget. And I think over the years, see, we also got some funding from the Waterloo Regional Heritage Foundation occasionally, and sometimes funding from the Waterloo Historical Society too. Because these interviewers, if Ryan didn't do the interview, and he did a lot of them, uh, the other interviewers were paid a nominal fee for doing the interview, so we did need a bit of a budget, and also for supplies. And a lot of people were shy about the idea because they didn't think they had a story to tell. And I think a lot of the people were talked into it the by the personality of the interviewer as well, mm-hmm. um, because they say some people were reluctant to be interviewed. But uh, Joanne and Andy and and Francis had a they all had a gift of being able to make people relax and forget that they were being interviewed, mm-hmm. which I think is is a big part of it. Both Ryan Taylor and another interviewer, Joanne Venton, have passed away. I was able to get in touch with Francis Hoffman and Dr. Andrew Thompson who explained their experience working on the program. This interview with Ken and Lillian Kroll is being done by Francis Hoffman on July the 18th, 1990. The interview was taking place at Mr. and Mrs. Kroll's home at 52 Edge Hill Drive, Kitchener. Frances Hoffman spent 10 years conducting interviews for the oral history program, and she figures she conducted about 230 interviews in that time. She could start her own podcast to retell stories of those interviews, it was a pleasure to catch up with her to discuss some of the more memorable conversations. And the people I interviewed were, as you say, of all walks of life. Uh, uh, lots of politicians, you know, Claudette Miller, Jack Young, and uh, Edith McIntosh. A lot of the uh, noted politicians of the region, and doctors, and farmers, and clergymen, and people that were involved in sports, and those who worked in industry, and factories, and people who ran local businesses, like people like Carl Dare of Dare Cookies, and I remember Kenneth Moore, who was a leather glove manufacturer, and he also spoke about his time as a pilot during the war, which was fascinating to me. And uh, well, there's just so many people, nurses, and uh, I think as well about Brother Harry Chisholm, who was in a religious order, who spoke about his time as a pastor during World War II overseas in Europe. And, you know, these interviews are just packed with wonderful, wonderful stories. Some of them sad and some of them joyous. So there are some themes in, in interviewing that I was beginning to find. Um, I, I, I did an interview with a couple, Ken and Lillian Kroll, C-R-O-A-L, and I had been sent to interview them primarily about uh, their uh, dedication to recycling, 
mm-hmm. because they that there had been an article in the newspaper about them, and uh, some people at the library were, were sort of scanning the newspapers to see who in the community might make a good choice for, for being interviewed. So I was asked to go and interview them, and I will tell you, that interview with those two is one of the most memorable interviews I, I did. Um, Ken was, of course, a Canadian who had served overseas during the war. Uh, But when he spoke about his childhood, he talked about his mother. And I think this was the first time I sort of realized this was happening. Ken started to talk about his mother making soup. We took our lunch to school, and we had to fire the furnace with wood. And at lunchtime... We'd all we'd take a raw potato, and we'd carve our initial in it, and when we'd get to school, we would <coughs> put our potato in the ash pit, under the under the flames, and when we went to have our lunch at noon, our potato would be baked, and we'd knock the top off it, and we'd e- eat these nice hot potatoes baked. Oh, what a nice idea! Anyway, in some of the <coughs> cold days. My mother used to make a couple of pails of scotch brass, and she used to carry the soup two miles down to the school. So the kids would all have oh, <laughs> hot, hot, hot soup, soup for lunch. Yeah, that but was nice. it had had to be carried. Mm-hmm. And you know, as he told me that story, there were tears flowing down his face. And, you know, I I thought, oh, gosh, he's feeling so emotional about his mother. But then I began to realize, I mean, as the years ticked by and I did more interviews, I began to realize that this was a common thread. Men, elderly men, would often become very, very emotional when they spoke about their mothers. And I think perhaps it was because they recognized how, how hard their mothers worked, you know, back in the 20s and 30s. And and they took note. Perhaps the mothers weren't aware, but that these boys were were realizing this. And then later in life, they would perhaps compare uh, uh, the, the relative ease that women today have when it comes to you know keeping house mm-hmm. and so on. Wow. Um, so I was always I was always prepared then for for this to happen. That when I spoke about their mother and their mother's kitchen and the treats and the food she made for them. They would always become emotional. It was it was really quite touching. Uh, wow, so, okay. I'll bet. But to, just to continue about this this couple, um, Lillian was one of those women that we occasionally see portrayed in movies. She was a volunteer uh, with the Women's Auxiliary Air Force, and she was a plotter working at RAF uh, Fighter Command Headquarters which meant, you know, in the films we see Winston Churchill smoking his cigar, standing in this room, overseeing this table full of ships, and these women are moving these things about and taking note of where their aircraft are, where the bombers are, and charting all of this thing, uh, this proceedings. And Lillian was one of those women. Where did you... Were you a volunteer? Yes, I was a volunteer. So how... Where? Where did you volunteer? Um, Well, I was uh, working in an insurance office when the war broke out, and Mm -hmm. we were evacuated. 
And then I tried to join the Wrens because of my family background. Like my mother had been in the Wrens in the First War, and my father was in the Navy, my grandfather was, and my great-grandfather was. But anyway, they weren't taking people in the Wrens, so then I tried for the Air Force, mm -hmm. and I was called up in July of 1940. And I trained at a place called Leighton Buzzard just outside of London and then I was stationed, I was posted to Stanmore which was a fighter headquarters that was at a place called Stanmore. Mm -hmm. and actually the place was Bentley Priory and Bentley Priory was the house that Nelson built for Lady Hamilton and the filter room where I worked was 60 feet under the ground. My. And there was the filter room down there and the ops room, and the ops plotted the aircraft over the land, and the filter room, we plotted them over the sea. So what, what did you do? When I was a plotter. So you went and moved all the things yeah. on the maps? Well, no, oh, it was on what? the table. On the table? Yeah. And we had a filter officer who, they had all these radar stations all along the coast, and I had Pevensey and Beachy Head were my two stations. Mm -hmm. And then we had to put the plots down from each of the radar stations, and then the filter would decide from that exactly where the aircraft was. I see. So actually, in September 1940, that was really when the Battle of Britain started. And I was there for three and a half years, with the exception of a couple of intervals when I was posted to Bordsey, which was the radar station near Felixstowe where Watson Watt first invented radar. And I was on the crew helping to train Canadian and American officers that came over to be filters. And then they finally caught up with me because you weren't supposed to stay at Stanmore because it wasn't very healthy being mm -hmm. 60 feet under the ground for all that length of time. So I had gone up on leave up to York to my home to my aunts and we were planning on having a nice vacation and instead of that a phone call came to say I was posted so I had to go back to York and then all the back, way back to from York from to York London to, all right, yes. Yes. and then from London I had to go way up right up to Inverness with my kit and everything else. Ah. So I worked there for a week and I met one of my girlfriends that I worked on the watch with. There was 50 girls on a watch and that also filter room was under the ground but it wasn't as far down as London because of course London was being bombed continually. Bentley Priory was only 19 minutes from Piccadilly Circus. Yes. Now are you, were you charting air, individual aircraft? Yes, or well raids. Know, they could tell from on the radar stations they saw on the tube how big they could tell they were specially trained they could mm -hmm. tell by the size of the blip how many aircraft approximately oh, they see. were and then we could judge the speed with how fast they moved mm -hmm. and there were other things there at Stanmore too like they had Y service which was a, they intercepted the German messages and that way they could get the ETA, that was the expected time of arrival mm -hmm. of the aircraft, the German aircraft, so they knew more or less what places they were going to bomb that night. And uh, 
So anyway, I went to Inverness, and the first Saturday I was there, I had written a letter home to tell them where I was and to give them my address. So I met this girl from my watch, and I said, oh, what do you do in this dead alive hole on a Saturday night? I've just been stationed in London for three and a half years. And she said, oh, well, there's this nice hotel, and they have a dance there. So I said, oh, well, maybe we should go. So we decided to go, and as I got there, and we were just arrived, and we looked around, and Ken turned around to leave. So he asked me for a dance. That was how we met. And that was it, yes. Yes. But then um, I had to remaster. That was change my job because of my health. And being I was a volunteer, they decided that they would give me my discharge. So I went back to York then mm. and in April, and we got married in June. But uh, meantime, like we had quite a lot of very prominent people came in the filter room in Stanmore. Like that was about the only place where Winston Churchill couldn't yeah. smoke his cigar. And King George the Sixth and Queen Elizabeth used to come down to see what was going on. And all the famous first of the few, like Paddy Finnegane and all those, um, Richard Hillary and a lot of the Canadian pilots. Mm -hmm. We also had King Peter of Yugoslavia and General Giro and de Gaulle and all those people used to come down. And the Y service, we, where we intercepted the German messages, we, we actually took one night the message when Bader was yes. taken a prisoner and to send him through the Red Cross some new legs. And of course they sent them to him and the minute he got them he tried to escape. Let me interject for a second. Lillian Kroll just rattled off a list of historical names from the British side of the Second World War. King George VI, the real King George who Colin Firth portrayed in the movie The King's Speech, along with his wife, Queen Elizabeth. First of the few as she referred to them, including Paddy Finnecane, the youngest pilot ever to hold the rank of wing commander he fought in the Battle of Britain. Richard Hillary also fought in the Battle of Britain and wrote a book about it called The Last Enemy. King Peter of Yugoslavia ended up being the last king of that country. General Giro, the only information on a General Giro I could find, was the Governor General of Korea. And Charles de Gaulle of France, the leader of that country from 1940 to 1944. That Bader she speaks of is Sir Douglas Bader, who also fought in the Battle of Britain. He lost his prosthetic leg while escaping a fighter aircraft that was about to crash. He was held a prisoner of war, but the German army made sure he received a new leg and apparently gave the British the okay to drop that leg by parachute at a German base in occupied France. Bader had attempted to escape from German custody a number of times. I also want to point out that Lillian Kroll is now the second person in my digitizing assignment who was in the same room as the Queen and Winston Churchill. Okay, back to Francis Hoffman. A very poignant story was told, uh, just a brief one, but nevertheless poignant. Ken, uh, shortly after their marriage, uh, boarding the train to go back and rejoin his regiment uh, in Europe and saying goodbye and, you know, tears because neither of them knew that they would see the other one again. It was a very tragic time, and uh, anyway, they did, happily, and came back uh, in, uh, I think Lillian came back to Canada 
1946 mm-hmm. as a, uh, a war bride, as they used yeah. to call them. So, um, you know, they, they were just a wonderful, wonderful couple to, to interview. This is Edna Stabler, conducted at her home in Waterloo County, Waterloo Region now, I guess, uh, Wilmot Township, on November the 7th, 1988. The interview is conducted by Andy Thompson. This is tape number one, side one. Dr. Andrew Thompson was a university student when he became involved in the oral history program. He tells the story of a memorable interview with Canadian journalist and author Edna Stabler, best known for her series of cookbooks, Food That Really Schmacks. It's based on the Mennonite home cooking in Waterloo Region. It's funny because I I sort of knew who Edna Stabler was, but I was a single guy. I didn't do much cookbook stuff or things like that. And and, uh, so I got to go and talk to Edna Stabler and went to her her home and... uh, uh, she was very interesting uh, because she talked a lot about what it was like uh, as a woman writer in a period where that wasn't really as common and the challenges she faced. And she had, uh, uh, Pierre Burton was a friend who had helped her. I met Dr. Robbins. He came to speak to the Canadian Club and he had won the Governor General's Award that year. And I told him what I was trying to do. And, and he said, well, now, when you come to Toronto, come up to my office. He was the head of the Victoria College Library and he said let's talk about it so I did that and he was just wonderful he was so encouraging and and he said Edna you do have talent and you have something to say and you have the ability to say it and I I had to believe him you know and I really worked hard I worked on that book for a very long time but but it it you know Keith said well you're not a writer till you've had something published, so don't start thinking of yourself or talk about yourself as if you were a writer. Well, I was writing every day. And uh, so I thought, well, I'd been sword fishing with the men, and and it was quite, quite an experience, and I decided I'd try to write it, just that story, and see if I could sell it. Well, I I worked on it, and I, and I took it to McLean's, and... <laughs> <laughs> went to the little man, the kiosk at the bottom, and I said, could I see the editor? And he said, yes, just go up to the sixth floor. Well, it was like saying I could go to see God. I never dreamed you could see an editor. And I went, and it was Scott Young, and I went up, and I was in the hall, and this young man came walking down the hall, and he said, who are you looking for? And I said, Scott Young. And he said, well, I'm Scott Young. What do you want? I need to interject for a second and put something into context. That Scott Young she's talking to is the father of musician Neil Young. Scott Young worked at McLean's from 1945 until 1948. Okay, back to Edna. So I told him I brought the story, and uh, he said, uh, well, why, why didn't you send it in? And I said, well, I thought I'd find out sooner. I thought he'd read it right on the spot, you know. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, since when has McLean's taken more than two weeks to... to uh, to let you know, and I said, well, I've never sent anything in before, and he said, well, leave it with me, and I'll, uh, you know, you'll, you'll soon find out. Well, in a week, he wrote to me and said that it was too long, but they wanted to publish it, 
and with my permission they would have to cut it. It was 24 pages long. And you know, the last story I did for McLean's, which was the masthead story and had a special editorial written about it and everything else. And, 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 and uh, I remember Hal Tennant was the editor then, and he said, Edna, short of the second coming of Christ, we'd never publish anything longer than 13 pages. And here's my first story, 24 pages. So, oh, I, I was just sick when they, when, when I got the thing and they'd cut it, you know, and the transitions were so terrible, and oh my, I mean, I thought it was awful, but uh, what else could I do? They paid me $150, and uh, so that was incredible. But oh yes, before that, I'd sent out a couple of paragraphs to Canadian Poetry Magazine and Saturday Night, and they were published as poems, and they were just paragraphs from the book. And uh, anyway, then uh, Bill Mitchell came up to speak to the Canadian Club, and uh, we had dinner with the executive, and Myrna talked to all the other ladies, and Bill and I talked to each other. And then Bill said, now, when, you're, when you come to Toronto, come, come into the office and, and let's have a chat. So I went down. Pete Keith went to Bermuda on a holiday, and I went to Toronto, and, and I went to, to McLean's, and and uh, and I appeared in Bill's the doorway, and he was talking to Myrna on the phone, and he and he said, as soon as he saw me, he said, "Hello, sweetheart." And he said, "Myrna, Edna Stabler just came in. I'm bringing her home for the weekend." Well, you know, it was quite a surprise. <laughs> so then I went down to Holt Renfrews and bought a pair of silk pajamas and I bought a toothbrush. And, and then I came back and, and drove home with Bill. And then he couldn't find the house. There were these two rows, two rows of, of, or at least blocks of streets. And the houses were the same in both blocks. And he always got wrong, went wrong, but we finally got there. And uh, and as soon as we got inside the door, he said, "Myrna, get the get the high get the pictures of the High River House and let her see that this isn't what we're used to." <laughs> but we had a wonderful time, and he read from his book, and I read from mine, and and it was just great. Well, then the, he took me down to Pierre Burton's office. Pierre was the new articles editor; he had just come on. And uh, he said, now, this is the girl who wrote that piece on sword fishing that was number one in that issue. And he said, why don't we get her to do a story for us on the old order, on the Mennonites? She lives up in that part of the country. And Pierre said, well, would you be interested? And I said, well, I've always thought I might write about them sometime, but I'm, I'm working on a book right now. And he said, well, uh, how about sending us a, 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 an outline and, and we'll... Uh, We'd really like you to do it, so I said, "Oh, all right, I'll." I, I, you know, I, I just sort of hesitated. When we got out of the office, Bill said, "Edna, you, here's the top market in Canada offering you an assignment on the strength of you having done one piece." And you say, "Well, I'm working on my book right now." He said, "You don't say that. You do it." And he said, "Get at it. Put the book aside for the time being," and uh, and I said, "Well." How, how do you know it was that my piece was that good? And I said, did you read my sword fishing piece? And he said, no. And I said, well, how do you know it was that good? And he said, well, Scott Young said it was. He told me about you coming in, and and, and he thought, oh, here's another little cutie from the Pen Guild. And, and then he read it and said, my God, she can write. And so anyway, he said, get at it. So I found a family and, and I lived with them and I wrote about them and Jesus won the Women's Press Club Award. 
I mean, that was like being given an Oscar when you've only just, when I'd only written one other thing. And it was, it was really scary because I thought, my gosh, I've got hit the, the, the top when, and I've only just started and what am I going to do now and how am I going to do it? And well, I, I had to get my picture taken for the, the record had, came up to take my picture for the Canadian press and the picture was in the papers all across the country and oh wow it was you know and McLean sent me a huge box of flowers and I got telegrams and letters from and well Mavis Gallant and June Callwood and Mary Wil Marjorie Wilkins Campbell were all in that competition and geez I, I mean I didn't know that till years later but anyway I won it and two hundred dollars, <laughs> and uh, well, then that that was wonderful to win that because it it really made me feel it gave me confidence, you know, and mm -hmm. and it gave me a feeling that that maybe I could do it. I was always amused that she didn't feed me quite frequently. When I would go, there would be, uh, you know, people would give me tea and cookies or something like that. Nope, I didn't get that. But what she did give me, which I I still have. Um, she found out that I had a cat, and she knitted cat toys with a little bit of catnip in them. And so she gave me this uh, hand-knitted little mouse that cats could play with. Uh, and not, I think, realizing just how important Edna Stabler was, I took it home and gave it to my cat. Uh, and then, actually, in a conversation with my mother, she said, take that away from the cat. That's a Canadian artifact at this point. So there was one, and you would never find it because it never became an interview. I went to talk to a woman, and uh, she was going to talk. She remembered, she was elderly, but she remembered the name change uh, from Berlin to Kitchener. And uh, so I wanted to talk to her about that. Uh, and we started the conversation the way we always did, where I had them talk about their name and, you know, uh, how long they had lived in the, in the community and things like that. And she talked about, the, and then I said, let's talk a little bit about what uh, Berlin was like in World War One. And there's a long silence, and she started to cry uh, because her beau, as she called him, um, he'd been gassed in the war, uh, and he came back, and he didn't feel like he could marry her because he was, and he died shortly thereafter. And uh, and then she, she told me that story, and she got up, and she sort of left the room, and she came back a little while later, and she said she couldn't do it, and uh, which I understood. I mean, it was, a, it was an intensely emotional experience. Uh, and so that one stuck with me, although there is no real record of that. So they, there were all sorts of, and most of them were, were not... People who had done hugely dramatic things, uh, and the, the program really, to a certain extent, it wanted to talk to people about what just regular life was like. I had a, a guy who was who had fought in the Spanish Civil War, and that was very interesting. That person's name was Dr. Maurice Constant. The Canadian government was not pleased that men like Maurice were joining up to fight the war of another country. Still to this day, Canadians who fought in the Spanish Civil War have not been recognized for their service to the Spanish conflict that occurred in the late 1930s. Here's a portion of that interview. Were, were you under any pressure because of uh, having served in Spain? Yes, there was continually uh, uh, the sense of, uh, 
of being watched, of being on, of being on a, uh, a list of people uh, who are being watched. Uh, I remember in going for, for a job uh, as in the advertising department of a Canadian publication, of a new Canadian publication. Uh, it was called Executive Magazine. It was to have been the Canadian equivalent of uh, a Fortune magazine in the States, you know. And uh, I didn't get the job, but when I came in to find out uh, uh, what, a, uh, what the decision was, the, uh, the person that interviewed me told me that uh, he didn't think I was fit for the job, and this is why I didn't get it. And not, he said, because a member of the RCMP had come to him uh, to warn him that uh, I was not to be trusted as, a, uh, as an employee. You see. Uh, he said, I threw the man out of the office. You know? And he said, I want you to know, he was no communist himself. You know? mm-hmm. But it, uh, he just wasn't happy with, uh, with this kind of thing going on in Canada. You know? Both the collection of audio cassette interviews by Francis Hoffman and Dr. Andrew Thompson are in the process of being digitized. And, uh, just a minute. You know, I got this head of mine here so crammed with history that sometimes I just gotta do a bit of thinking. And maybe you will too when you're once heading for 86. That's Harry Kinsey from an interview where he tells the story of his ancestral home in the village of Blair. He was able to put some of those crammed thoughts of his onto an audio cassette. He had stories he had heard as a child of ancestors in the 1800s who settled in the area. Many of the people who were interviewed in the oral history program talked about the years gone by. But what about the future? Is it time to approach people now to tell new stories about the past? Where does oral history go next? Are there voices out there that haven't been tapped for a project like this? Is it time to reboot the oral history project? Is there value in oral history? Is anyone in the present interested in talking about their past? Do they have a story to tell, or have we heard from them already on various social media platforms? There's a lot of questions. I posed a few of them to the current and former history librarians, Karen Ball-Pyatt and Susan Hoffman. What do you need to do to get the program running again? Wow, what a great question. Um, to get the program running again, I think we probably would need um, some funding um, because we used to actually contract out the interviewer um, to do the interviews on behalf of the library, and I'd like to do that something like that again. Um, and again, it's tr- in terms of now, um, it's evolving technologies. It's now digital. It's no longer the tape um, cassette players and recorders that we're using. So um, to get the program again, I think we'd have to kind of plan out everything um, get some kind of our ducks in order, get the techno- technology lined up, and um, and work with that. Why is it important that we document the voices of the past? Um, I think there's a couple of reasons. Mainly, it's so personal. Uh, you're not dealing with like a textbook or someone, um, a fancy uh, historian telling you what was happening. You're actually listening to people's real life experiences and in their own voices as well, uh, which we didn't really think about was being too important at the time. But uh, as we, the years passed, we would get relatives 
of the people being interviewed asking for a copy of the interview mm-hmm. because they wanted to hear their loved one's voice again. And this was an opportunity to listen to the, you know, and we would make them a copy of the cassette for them. Um, so I think the personal aspect of it, and it's just so real. I mean, it's a real person talking about real events in their lives. And also very personal because you get to hear the voices yeah. and hear the emotion and some of the questions and answers and and things like that. So, Is it time Francis Hoffman and Dr. Andrew Thompson turned on the tape machine again to start interviewing? Well, wouldn't it be wonderful if, if that were done? I'm afraid I'm beyond uh, doing, doing more interviews myself, but I just think it would be marvelous. Why is an oral history project so important for a social history in uh, the community today? Well, I think you get... Uh, as, you get this sort of unfiltered view. I can qualify that in a second, but you get an, a, a sort of unfiltered view of, of a person's experiences. Now, one of the things you've got to be worried about with oral history is when you're thinking back to what you did, much in the way I'm thinking back to what I did 25 years ago or so, uh, you pick out highlights, memories blur together. But one of the things that I have found very, very useful is the, the emotional connection that the, the voice makes, that you hear, and, and perhaps the impact is, is, is clearest there, that they might, you know, maybe they have a date a little bit wrong or you know, something like that, but clearly the event has made such an, an impact on them that they remember it, and, and if, you know, you can tidy up things like, oh, it actually happened on December the 4th, not the 9th or whatever, but you can never compensate for that 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 emotion, that that connection of experience, and and I think that as research goes, that's that's incredibly helpful. And plus, uh, to a huge degree, people tend to remember important things really well in my experience. Funny thing about the past: some people want to talk about it; others would rather forget it. How fortunate we are for those who do want to speak about their past and the interviewers who were able to draw out some great stories about how life was on the road that took us to where we are today. For Dr. Debbie Glaster, the first female doctor in Wellesley Township, who will get the last word in this feature, the journey down that road began on a horse with her father, the first Dr. Glaster, who made house calls. She explains to interviewer Joanne Venton. How do you remember your dad getting around to his patients? Mm. What kind of transportation? Oh, dear old Meg. Meg? Meg was uh, his longest lasting, most faithful horse. I think Meg was 22 or something when he finally put her out to pasture (laughs) at his his, uh, brother's farm. He had two horses. None of them were, as I say, long-lasting like me. And um, he got his first car, I believe it was 1913. Mm-hmm. And I think that Ed Reiner and Ed Staley had got cars uh, a few months earlier, or, or maybe the year before that. I'm not certain, but something like that. And um, 
you had to crank it, of course. Mm -hmm. And not every time, but very frequently, if you were going out for um, five miles, you would have a flat tire. And sit on the roadside <laughs> while the tire was being mended. You've been listening to Station to Station. I'm Joe Pavia. Check out other podcasts, blogs, and photos that are posted to this site. If you want to get in touch, you can leave a reply at the bottom of this page or send an email to s2spod at gmail.com. That's the number 2, s2spod at gmail.com. You'll also find that address on the About Joe page. Subscriptions to my podcast are free. And if you follow this site, you'll receive instant notification via email of a new post. All you have to do is go to the bottom of the homepage and enter your email address. You can even sign up a friend. That's all. We'll see you on the next podcast.